Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I'm joined by my co-host, Larry, and we'll be talking about governance frameworks. Governance frameworks is an idea that a lot of people have been asking us about and projects have to think about when designing and implementing new governance systems. So this week, we brought on two of the smartest people about these topics, Arrow and Alex Kroger. Arrow is a longtime contributor to various forms of governance frameworks and toolings. In particular, he's worked a lot on Compound Governor Bravo and has a lot of opinions on just how governance designs should operate. And he's also built uni.vote and comp.vote and is working on a few other projects in the governance space. Alex Kroger was formerly on the protocol ops team where he managed all things governance for Andreessen Horowitz. And he's now working on a bunch of different projects in the governance space out of his new company, Teton Finance. We'll be covering a bunch of different topics related to governance frameworks. We'll touch on other things like cross-chain governance, other kinds of useful tooling that people haven't built yet, but we'll need to in the future, and just what's worked so far and what hasn't. So I guess to kick things off, when people talk about governance frameworks, what does that even mean? And Arrow, I don't know if you want to take a stab at that one. All these crypto native projects have contracts which control something really core to their community, whether it be a lot of locked up funds or upgrading contracts or streaming money to contributors. There are these special permissions which are granted to everyone and everyone has to decide in some way what happens. When is this special button clicked? So governance infrastructure allows for everyone to come together in a decentralized way and decide what is done with these special privileges. That's my take on them. If Kroger has something else to say on this. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just like a set of instructions for making changes to a protocol. That's kind of what makes DAOs really cool and unique is the rules that govern them are codified on chain and nobody can update without using the governance system itself. So that kind of programmatic guarantee for decentralized control is pretty interesting and powerful. I almost think of governance frameworks as sort of like the core building blocks for building in any kind of voting system. It's almost like, like I almost think of you as James Madison. If you think of Compound Governor Bravo as like the constitution that a lot of projects have or countries have used as inspiration for their own systems, that's almost an apt analogy. So I guess, Arrow, if you want to talk a little bit about your work with Compound Governor Bravo, starting with how they thought about Alpha, Compound Governor Alpha in the first place, and sort of what changed and sort of what you worked on. Compound Governor Alpha was really the building block of the explosion of DeFi summer. The beginning of most DAOs, obviously, there were existing voting mechanisms beforehand, which were much more complicated. The maker DAO voting system is the most obvious instance of voting pre-compound. But the Compound Governor Alpha was built to be incredibly simple and really just a very modular piece of software, which could be used for any DAO. When Compound was building this, I've spoken to some of the engineers at Compound. They did believe that Governor Alpha would be used by other projects, and they wanted it to be as simple and easy to use as possible. And it did its purpose. Governor Alpha served on probably hundreds of different DAOs at some point and had many, many different proposals go through it. 
but it was very limited in its use cases. And there were a couple of things that the community really wanted to do when it came to voting, which Governor Alpha just didn't allow for. Some examples of what came into Governor Bravo was whitelisting and reasons for voting. You can leave a string reason with your vote of why you voted. You can abstain to votes now. You can cancel votes in a more obvious method. And there's a couple other features like upgradability. But there's just like an endless wish list from the compound community of what they wanted governance to be able to do, but it wasn't able to do. It was a relatively large project, which kept building upon itself of more things people wanted more and more. And I took it upon myself sometime around, say, January 2020, I believe, to finally get this done. And over the next few months, I managed to pull together Governor Bravo with a friend of mine, and we finally deployed it to governance, I think, around March or April. That's super fascinating. And just to provide some context, how did you even decide to build Bravo? Were you like a longtime compound contributor? Like, What allowed you to come into the community and build this essential piece of tooling that a lot of people ended up using? Prior to Governor Bravo, I'd been involved in the community for probably over a year already. Had pushed forward many proposals, improving some contracts. Before that, I programmed borrow caps for the comptroller, which while they haven't really been used it successfully upgrade the protocol in a way which was used by many other DAOs and probably better use cases and Compound used them. And I helped out throughout other facets, writing articles for the community, contributing on forums, being active in Discord. So I was a known community member. I was active. I was known to be someone who knew how to program. And I did. I was a software engineer for many years prior to my involvement in Compound. Then this governance opportunity came along and I felt that if no one else was going to do it, I would. It's really cool to hear your background, Errol. And I think some listeners will be like, maybe they're an engineer working for another project. And I think a lot of people certainly ask us questions. Should we build our governance contracts from scratch or should we fork something that already exists? And if we do build something from scratch, like how hard is it really to build a governance system that actually works. Would love to hear how you think about those questions. So I think that nowadays, after seeing so many different governance systems, it's not an issue of, I want to write my own from scratch. The idea behind Governor Alpha and Governor Bravo is that they are relatively simple tools. It's more about the concepts of what they brought into effect, which I think is more groundbreaking, but the actual code is really simple. What you do gain from using these existing contracts is, number one, they're battle-tested. Everyone knows they work. They've worked for securing billions of dollars for years already. But number two is the tooling that is already compatible with existing governance contracts. If you want to be integrated in some governance front-end, if you use existing governance contracts, you have a much higher chance of Tally or Masari integrating you into their front-end because it's much less work for them. If you want to have an API running with the graph, it's so much easier if you have an existing governance framework. You just take one of the existing great graphs, change two addresses, and you're good to go. I think that's really what you gain by using existing governance contracts over spinning up your own one. So you have to 
really be convinced that yours has some really, really good reason to do it. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Just to tack on to some of like the benefits you get from using a pretty standard one, like Governor Compound or Governor Bravo that had really good support already is custodians. So like a lot of like large token holders are going to be using custodians and custodians have a finite amount of time to integrate new governance interfaces into the product. And so using a standard one that's already been used by a bunch of projects is going to give you a huge leg up there. That's so interesting, guys. So Arrow, something you brought up is the simplicity of the compound contracts. And Alex, you worked at a huge fund that was super involved in the governance of many different networks. And I imagine some projects, if they were to roll their own governance process from scratch, it would sort of be a pain to learn new governance systems for each project. If you're a token holder or if you're a fund, you'd have to go project by project and learn the new processes. And that would get really confusing really quickly. Do you think the standardization of settling on one, two, or three standards for governance is just a huge time savings for token holders? Yeah, I think the actions are probably somewhat similar between frameworks. At the end of the day, it's typically like you're voting on a proposal. And so from like a token holder's perspective, as long as you have a good interface for doing it, at the end of the day, you're probably going to be voting yes or no on something. That being said, I think the tooling kind of comes into play here. So like if you have like your standard interface and way of digesting information about new proposals, if you start fragmenting that where you have to discover information from many different front ends or had to go to different interfaces in order to vote, that becomes really cumbersome. So I think you do end up like saving the token holder quite a bit of time if you use a standard governance interface that can plug into existing tooling. Basically what Kroger said here, my only thing I'd add on to is I think that having one, two, or three is fine. But what I would almost advocate for is rather than making them hard contracts, make them abstract contracts or interfaces where individual projects can add on their own functionality, but that doesn't really affect what the end user sees. They can do some weird manipulation behind the scenes, but the end user still gets to vote and the graph will still see votes emitted and queued events and proposals created in a relatively similar fashion. Do you see this happening on, I mean, there's a bunch of different third-party UIs and companies trying to build stuff around this, which you mentioned, Masari, Sybil, which is built by the Uniswap team, Tally, Boardroom, Commonwealth. Have you guys used these to vote? How do you think about what users will prefer? I find like Tally to be a really good tool for kind of like the individual token holder. It's a good aggregator of information as well as having a good interface for voting. At like the large level, like if you're using a custodian, you're probably voting via a more bespoke interface that has some sort of extra logic layered onto it for approval. So that's kind of like a separate track. But yeah, also to like piggyback onto one of Arrow's points like around interfaces, there's some evidence of that even like the technical space. So Open Zeppelin has like an implementation of a governor contract in kind of their contract library. And they have a little extension add-on that you can say like, all right, have the same interfaces, Governor Bravo from Compound. It's kind of like what's important is the interface more so than like the inner logic of the contract. Yeah, I think that these alternative interfaces for voting will be really important. What I brought up before, Masari's Governor Dashboard, it really just aggregates everything that someone would want to see and 
a DAO centric world, expecting people to be able to navigate to every single DAO website to vote whenever they need to. It's just relatively impractical. If you're voting on five, 10 different DAOs, it would be really annoying to have to use 10 different interfaces all the time and put all these different websites rather than having just one list of your proposals that you can vote on on some third-party website. Could not agree more. I think being parts of multiple DAOs and making informed decisions is challenging enough and getting used to different frameworks and processes is a whole nother set of new context that takes time to get used to. So, I mean, we've seen Compound Governance Alpha and now Bravo operate empirically. We've seen it succeed and a few other projects either use it or fork the contracts and make some small changes. Era, looking back, how do you feel about Bravo now? Is there anything you would change in hindsight or going forward? Is there anything that if you had the ability to, you would change? Definitely. So I think that Governor Bravo is really a great stepping stone in showing that there isn't just one contract and how DAOs are mutable. DAOs evolve and need more features, different features. The number one feature that I really wish I did was making proposals time-based. The fact that they're block-based is just really bothers me. Earlier on in the Ethereum ecosystem, a lot of people didn't trust the timestamp on the blocks for various reasons. They just didn't know if it would be exact indefinitely. But over the course of the years, I think we're all pretty convinced that timestamp on blocks is relatively accurate and isn't going to be a major method of exploiting contracts. So I definitely would have rather used timestamp for governance than blocks. And I'm hoping to upgrade governance at some point to do that. What is the advantage of timestamps to blocks? So if you use blocks for any proposal, the end time of the proposal is always just an estimate. In a compound proposal, Uniswap proposal, any proposal using Governor Bravo, you'll see on the front end say, voting starts now, ends in three days. That's just an estimate. Voting ends in whatever X number of blocks from now. And it's just saying, if there is a block every 14 seconds, when will that be? It's not a solid time, which makes it more complicated for governance front ends and providers to actually tell you a time for the end. I believe there is actually a problem with this early on when Uniswap was adopted Governor Alpha. They made a time estimate based on a slightly off block time. Don't quote me on this, something like 15 seconds versus 14 point something that block time is. And it ended up making it seem like there was more time to vote than there actually was. And it ended up confusing some people who thought at the very end they had some extra time to vote, but then it ended based on block number. So it can be kind of confusing from a UI perspective if you're not careful. Yeah, something exactly like that happened, I recall. And that was way off, I remember. On the topic of simplicity and complexity of governance, something we've seen other projects use is adding more features to governance. So instead of voting yes or no, you could vote yes and relative strength of your yes or no and the relative strength of your no and things like that. How do you guys generally feel about that, giving users more optionality to vote in, in terms of the different choices they have? So one thought I have on that is, I don't know if strength-based voting, how many use cases it has. I think there's a lot of interesting use cases for what I call like negative consent voting, where things pass unless there is a sufficient majority of no's. 
so the way Governor Alpha and Bravo voting works now is everything is by positive consent. So the default is the proposal fails and nothing passes unless you reach a quorum of yes votes. And an alternative way to do that is to flip that and say it's a negative consent model and certain addresses are able to propose or make proposals that the default option is to pass unless there is a sufficient quorum of no's. That's something I would personally like to see more experimentation with that Governor Alpha and Bravo don't currently support. I think something really cool that you could add on with negative consent would be having like multiple different time locks, say, where the address could get executed from different locations, depending on what type of proposal it is. Because even in a really important situation, say, changing the implementation of governance, I'd probably prefer for a positive consent, but for something like changing parameters or granting a contributor or something like that, I would definitely be okay with negative consent. I think these are really great points. I think in general, I'm a big fan of more negative consent type systems that don't rely on a ton of average and normal token holders to participate in everything. Because I think we've seen, again, empirically that that doesn't work super well. And I do agree with Arrow that you don't want every decision to be negative consent. It just, it presents a potentially much bigger attack vector. So I think one thing that Larry and I have thought about and brainstorming is like every governance system can be broken down into like a set of 15 to 20 to 30 major sets of decisions. These would be things on like token economics, fee, adding new collateral assets, changing interest rate parameters. It depends on the specific protocol, but those are some of the main ones, as well as things like treasury transfers, hiring people for a council. There's various levels of importance, maybe for a simple treasury transfer. That's, as you said, error, like a negative consent vote, but to make some large change to a parameter for something like compound, that will require a lot more positive consent and activation energy to really pass. So it puts the onus on people to proactively do things depending on how much downside risk there is. Curious if that makes sense to you guys. Totally. I definitely agree that certain things should require positive consent and sort of like bucketing things by how critical they are is definitely a good way of looking at it. I definitely agree too. Something interesting, I was looking at DYDX governance contracts recently and DYDX governance contracts actually does something like this. It allows for bucketing of different permissions where you have different executors depending on the type of proposal. I'm not quite sure if they fully utilize it to allow for different things to have different types of proposals, but they do build in more of the infrastructure than any other governance contract I've seen prior. We've done some work with DYDX. We're helping run the grants program, among other things. And honestly, it's been something I've been really impressed by. The depth to which like governance is thought out and there's different kinds of time locks, there's different thresholds depending on the types of proposals. It's just much more granular depending on the potential impact and downside of the proposal. The trade-off you're making is that by having all of these different quorums and thresholds depending on the decision type, it's a little bit more complex and it takes a bit more time and effort to really understand. So it's not quite as simple as other frameworks, but it's a new experiment in that direction that's worth following. Recently, I was reading a little bit about corporate governance and there's board members, obviously companies have boards and there's this title, the chairman of the board. And one of the rights the chairman of the board has is setting the agenda, which is what are people going to talk about? And that's obviously a really 
powerful thing that they can do because if you dictate what people can talk about, you sort of dictate what's going to be done. And as someone who works on these contracts, it feels to me that people who design these governance contracts are sort of like the chairman of the board. You could sort of dictate what token holders can actually vote on. Is that a power that protocols should think about prior to releasing these contracts out in the wild? Yeah, I think you're definitely right there where the type of governance, the type of voting does dictate what governance will do, what governance can do. Another example, DYDX versus compound contracts, is DYDX contracts allow for delegate calls. Compound contracts do not. So that significantly limits what the community can talk about. You can't delegate call from compounds. So what people are going to do is a little bit different than what you can from DYDX. And as you said, what governance capabilities are dictates what people do. Again, Governor Bravo is upgradable. So technically can do anything. However, upgradability is not always the way to go. Definitely. Even with Governor Alpha, there's always the option of governance could essentially change itself. So with Compound, there's the time lock contract that's kind of like this ultimate authority, but like the governance logic can always be kind of ripped out and changed. Hence like the Alpha to Bravo upgrade. So that's always an option is if the governance system is too restrictive, then typically there's a method for token holders to rewrite the system, basically call a constitutional convention and change the rules. Yes, that's definitely true. But I do think that the project should think about which type of governance infrastructure they use, because for the beginning, that is what limitations will be in place. And eventually, once there's enough velocity to overthrow the governance contract, then it will happen. But their decision does have some standing on the beginning and building of the community and what the community is built around. 100%. Definitely agree with that. Kind of an open question. Are there any governance proposals that you guys have come across where limitations around the framework they're using has materially affected the outcome of the vote? Well, I can't say it has it affected the outcome. I know that Governor Bravo is not well suited to account for the proposal for the auditors. We had three proposals where it was just yes or no, and then we would cancel if there were multiple yeses. I think we would have been in a much better situation if individuals could have just chosen one of the three auditing firms in a single proposal, which we were not able to do. Totally makes a lot of sense. And Larry and I were involved with that as well. And for San Saw, it could have been done a lot better. Slightly related to that, Derek, I think is the lack of emergency functionality on a lot of DAO contracts. So one thing I'm specifically thinking of is with the proposal 62 bug that was introduced in the compound, there's a time lock with every proposal in compound at the time. I think still is. It was kind of a seven-day minimum to pass any proposal. And it was kind of painful to watch because it's like the community has a fix and wants it implemented as soon as possible, but there's no way to kind of like overwhelm this time lock. You just kind of have to sit on your hands for seven days. Expressing urgency is something that's also not possible in a lot of governance systems. Although there's some cases where, like Arrow mentioned, with DYDX is separate time locks for separate actions. So you can express bucketed distance from when you create the proposal to when it can be executed. But 
getting it through more quickly for an emergency is, is not something that's expressible right now. I definitely agree with the sentiment there where we don't really account for emergencies as much as we should. I know that Maker has their kill switch or had, I don't know if that's still functional, where you could burn Maker to basically shut down a lot of the system. And then you have a lot of multi-sigs which with special permissions. Compound has the pause guardian. And then DYDX has alternative types of proposals. What do you think is the best way of dealing with emergencies of these three or other types too? Well, my two cents here, I think ideally there is some way to express a time lock override with overwhelming voting support. So some very high threshold of votes can override a time lock. And you can even think of combining that with kind of a community multi-sig concept. So let's say you need two-thirds of voting power to approve a vote, or maybe over half, realistically, since a lot of voting power is inactive or tied up in some other on-chain activity. I think having some way of expressing through token holder voting a sense of urgency and overwhelming support would be very helpful, but it's kind of one of those laundry list items it's hard to get to. Switching gears a little bit, guys, and Alex, you had sort of mentioned how certain contracts have the support of custodians. And just so that listeners get a better sense of what it feels like to be on the other side of voting, there's obviously snapshot, there's on-chain voting, there's asset balances held in different custodians if you're a large fund. How does it work behind the scenes if there's a compound proposal happening and you're working at a large fund and you actually need to vote? Yeah, so I can't speak for, for every fund, but I mean, there's kind of like two things there. Like one is kind of like discovering information about new proposals and what's going on within a DAO. So if you have people that are kind of like dedicated to governance, then you probably have people who are kind of looking through forums and you kind of are aware of things coming down the pipe. When a proposal hits the chain, it shouldn't be a surprise to you is kind of the first aspect of this. Proposals typically follow a life cycle of hitting the forums via discussion, hitting some sort of like snapshot consensus vote, and then finally hitting on-chain. So if it's hitting you by surprise on-chain, you probably weren't paying enough attention to what was going on in kind of the informal parts of governance. So the other aspect of this is it varies by custodian. The interface might be a bespoke interface that the custodian exposes that shows, hey, there's this proposal on chain and how would you like to vote? And you might be able to specify you need a three of four people that are specified in this list to approve such a vote. Another custodian might expose even just like an email type thread where it's you can ask them to vote on this proposal and you need sign off over email by a certain threshold of people who are connected to the organization. So it's kind of a grab bag, I would say right now. I wonder along with the general theme of like negative consent voting, that as governance decisions grow in importance and scale, that exchanges, custodians, staking providers, like will eventually, they do do this on the proof of stake chains, basically adopt default decisions and will vote on your behalf unless otherwise dictated. Like, I don't think custodians and exchanges have really done this. Maybe I think Binance has done it with like Steam. I don't know if you guys remember that, but just another ongoing thing that I think about in terms of third-party support and governance. My sense here is because custodians do have so many assets and customers, most retail customers in particular don't have the time to vote or have an opinion. 
they'll probably just delegate that power to the custodian and the custodian will probably vote on their behalf or use another third party who is a sophisticated governance actor to vote on behalf of the custodied funds because it's hard to picture a universe where people with one, two, 10, 100 tokens are scrounging through the forums and making educated votes. And I do remember in some of the early governance discussions on Compound and I think maybe even Uniswap that one of the important decision elements was like how much of these tokens do exchanges actually hold and control. And if you think about Uniswap's competition, they are the centralized exchanges and the custodians in some ways. So it's kind of like designing systems that can't be easily attacked by a potential adversary almost. So a couple of things here. Delegation is definitely a good option. And Andreessen Horowitz, they publicly in the past talked about their delegation program, which I think is a very good thing for them and for the space in that it can decentralize decision-making ability and means that for large balances, like no single set of eyes is kind of a single point of failure for passing governance proposals or not. Another thought I have here is I think delegation is great. I think the economics around it are not great. I actually think there should be an in-protocol way for delegates to earn a living, or if not earn a living, at least be economically incentivized to attract votes to them, to themselves, and get compensated for the work that they're doing. Since it is work to be a delegate, it's work to vote on proposals and be informed about the protocol. But for right now, it's kind of like a labor of love for a lot of people, when I think it should be a labor of earning, (laughs) if you will. I fully agree with that, Kroger. I've actually thought about ways of rewarding voters within the compound system before. I've never gone ahead to implementing it. I've put a lot of thought into it, and it definitely makes sense to do that at some point, and I hope someone does. I was just on that thread. One of the counter arguments I've heard, and I'm curious to get everyone's reaction, is if you're a large token holder, your motivation to vote is because you have so much skin in the game and you are so exposed to the project. And by paying people to vote, they may actually not have skin in the game. And they're almost like paid politicians. And it's sort of over time may devolve into political bureaucracy. That These are just arguments people kind of throw out there. Curious to get reactions on that. I mean, I think delegation should be taken seriously. And obviously, your benefit from voting is proportional to your token balance currently. But if you think about it, there's still a free rider problem, even for very large token holders. Even if you own 20% of tokens, if the other 80% of token holders are taking care of things, then you get to benefit from them taking care of things, but reap all the benefits via your token holdings. So I think if you were to explicitly incentivize voting, and I think there's some pitfalls there. So I think you should intentionally design the incentives that they're not easily gained. And I have a few thoughts on that as well. But obviously, I think it's probably not good if you just design it such that if you show up and vote, no matter what you voted for or when you voted for it, you get compensated. I don't think that's the way to go. But I think if you make voting compensated at the protocol level, I think you'll start to see sort of competitive markets develop for good delegates. And so I think if you are a useless, not saying all politicians are useless, but if you're like acting as a kind of like a useless protocol politician trying to farm voting rewards, I think you would eventually get sucked out of that role by a competitive delegate market. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with Kroger over there. Something that just seems to happen quite often is you just run out of people who care in the forum sometimes. A lot of the time you'll have conversations that run out of steam and people move on to other things because they're just not being paid to do these things. They're not being paid to argue in the governance forums. They're not being paid to vote. And sometimes people get bored of it. They move on to other things and projects should care that there are individuals who care about the project and are getting paid and making a living to keep the projects up to date. I think that's really the only way to solve this free rider problem is by explicitly compensating these activities. Otherwise, there's always going to be a free rider problem, even with large token holders. Do you guys see this as something that should be done or experimented on from the protocol level? What sort of Jacob Phillips is talking about with in terms of governance mining? Or is this something more subjective that token holders can vote on? Delegates can decide on which politicians are performing well? Or maybe a combination of both? I don't have an issue with the latter of just voting on who's doing well. But I think for there to be a real competitive market, it has to be like, right, objective market. You see, if you vote with tokens, you get money. Once you start making it down to the games of the governance forums, at that point, people are just like, it's too much to deal with. You have to know too many people and get your foot in the door. But if there's actually an easy, straightforward path, get delegates, vote, get money. I think that's something that people will more likely follow than the other one. Also, it's just more quantifiable, less subjective. And yeah, I think that it should be done. I think that once one DAO does it, you could see so many others doing it. Given the slow process that we've seen a lot of DAOs suffer because of the governance process, there seems to be like a pendulum swing towards the other side and a centralization of sorts of hierarchy building. Some projects call it councils, committees, pods. There's all sorts of words floating around. But the idea is kind of simple. It's to put people who are competent in a certain area in charge and let token holders basically proxy their power to them and let this small group of people make decisions. And if it sounds more like a company, that's because it is. What are your reactions to that, to the idea of making governance less of a tool where token holders comment and everything and more of a way to elect representatives that token holders give power to? I think this ties in well with the negative consent model concept. So I think token holders could potentially appoint people to be in charge of certain things that are kind of like regular maintenance type things. Like Compound has quite a few of these collateral factors that Gauntlet has a pretty large say in how those develop based on risk analysis. And so negative consent is a way for token holders don't have to be involved, but they could be involved if they see a reason to. So I think those two concepts kind of pair well together. Yeah, Kroger got exactly what I was going to say. Maybe to add on this, even more so, we could plug it into the other thing we were talking about of having different executors, different types of proposals, which can do different actions. So you could have different pods of different people and niches who know what they're doing in something. And each pod has access to a different part of the DAO. And they'll have whatever they say goes unless negative consent. So put them all together and you get a new cool idea there. I guess changing topics a little bit. One of the things we've talked a little bit about, Arrow and Kroger, is this concept of cross-chain governance. What does that mean and what are the implications? So one of the reasons I'm interested in cross-chain governance is 
we have a lot of ideas for how to change and make incentive systems and governance more complicated. But one like elephant in the room with Ethereum is it's extremely expensive to make anything complicated. So voting already on Ethereum is somewhat costly. So one of the reasons I'm excited about cross-chain governance and why I think governance is actually pretty well suited to being cross-chain is you can actually tolerate a certain amount of latency, which is often an issue in cross-chain activities. So you can get messages from one chain to another, but you can't necessarily get messages quickly from one chain to another in a safe way. But with governance, we're already having these multi-day review and voting periods. So latency isn't that much of an issue. If it takes an hour to bring a governance decision from some other chain to Ethereum, that doesn't seem like a major obstacle. And what's cool about pushing onto another chain potentially is you can actually get much more complicated and cheaper voting schemes than you can on Ethereum layer one. So I think there's other things to be excited about, but that's what I'm particularly excited about is I think it's pretty well suited to this cross-chain messaging solution. And you could potentially, A, make voting cheaper so you could reduce the barrier for smaller token holders and smaller delegates to vote. And you could also potentially make these incentive schemes more complicated without running into extreme gas costs of Ethereum mainnet. I'm not sure if the rest of you have seen this, but SnapshotX was announced a couple of weeks back. And I'm really supportive of this idea, as Kroger was saying. I don't believe that voting should really be happening anymore on Ethereum. You can have a very high level of security with votes on, say, some rollup, Starknet, Arbitrum, and send them back to Ethereum for actual execution, where you'll be saving so much in gas fees. Another aspect to cross-chain governance, which is really exciting to me, is we live in a cross-chain world, at least today, where protocols are deploying on many, many different chains. And as far as I know, we don't have any single solution yet, which is capable of executing on multiple different chains in an effective manner. From what I've seen, most of the time you have either snapshot voting or some centralized governance, which is then relayed by multi-sigs to other chains, which I don't think is sustainable long-term. That's a really good point. I mean, cross-chain governance is becoming kind of a necessity because a lot of protocols live in a multi-chain world now. Just kind of thinking out loud, I wonder if because of the complexity of multi-chain governance, it will be one of these things that's a bottleneck for taking a project and taking it to many chains. And that will almost necessitate a project to pick maybe one, two, three chains at most and stick to those because of the complexity of the problem. I am relatively convinced that there will be a project which takes this problem head on and does create an elegant solution, which is useful and will allow DAOs to really expand to as many chains as they want. I don't know if there is anything being built right now, but there are a couple ideas in my head which really would make it possible for you to have some sort of centralized voting system which would relay to any chain. I feel like this entire talk has thus far been a lead into Arrow's VC pitch <laughs> for a new company doing blockchain <laughs> governance. I was thinking the same thing. Arrow, here's your chance to pitch a bunch of people on podcast form. You're not so far out. I actually have thought about this specific idea before cross-chain governance. I have not gone beyond the thinking aspect. I've told my idea to a couple of people, but haven't had the time to really formulate it and go ahead with it. So no pitch today.
to anyone listening, though, do reach out to Arrow because it sounds like he is fundraising. So <laughs> I am not fundraising, to be clear. That's what they all say. It will only increase the hype. <laughs> awesome. So I guess one of the more recent themes in the past that's gotten a lot of attention in the past few weeks is the concept of V tokens, where it's voting escrow tokens popularized by Curve, where users can stake and lock up their tokens and have a greater proportional voting weight for protocol governance, depending on how long they choose to stake. I believe the staking period is between six months to two or three years. And if you stake for six months, you might get like a 2x multiplier. And if you stake for two or three years, you get like a 4x multiplier. So it's designed to incentivize longer term participants to hold and allow them to have a bigger voice long term. So, And we've seen various iterations of this now where there's rewards layered on top through fees or inflation. So there's, yeah, Curve, I think, originally popularized it, but we're now seeing a whole range of experiments. Curious if you guys have thoughts on this as well. I think it really just makes a lot of sense for someone who's long-term aligned with the project through a lockup to have more of a say than someone who theoretically could have borrowed the token yesterday and is going to give it back tomorrow. I don't think anyone's arguing against that. And solely the V-staking without rewards, I don't know many people who are arguing against it. I do agree that you definitely should have some bonus. As far as rewards go, I think that kind of comes back to the day of reckoning for DeFi DAOs, where I'm sure with many people would know with like the dot-com boom, there's just some day where no revenue, like why are we paying this much? So it seems like people are talking about it a lot more now with the downturn in DeFi and recent market downturn of where rewarding stakers is demonstrating that the DAO is actually making money and returning to investors. And there is some sense of profits to be turned. This stuff gets complicated really quickly, but one way to think about it is with staking, as it's seen in the crypto space, you can do it several ways. You can basically ask people to lock up tokens and then return, give them more governance power. You can also ask people to lock up tokens and then give them more governance and economic power. Or you can ask them to lock it up and just give them economic power. And for the most part, we've seen the middle option, which is you allow token holders to stake, lock up their tokens for a certain period of time, and give a multiplier on both the governance power and the economic rights. I think it's still too early to say how this really works out in the long term. But my sense is the giving of economic rights, so taking some income and giving it to those who stake and not giving it to those who don't stake, It's like taking from one pocket and putting it in the other. And here, the pockets are you're taking it from non-stakers and giving it to stakers. And that seems like a pretty bad deal, I think, to most people because a lot of non-stakers are probably retail people who own some tokens and they hold them in Coinbase or, or another custodian. They don't really know how to stake. It's not something that's interesting to them. And for sophisticated stakers who follow the space very closely, to take money from non-stakers seems a little bit off to me. Another thing worth exploring, and we sort of touched on this in the Treasury podcast a few months ago, but for I think most protocols, that profit that they generate, they could probably reinvest it back into the protocol at a higher rate of return than the dividend yield that they pay to stakers on an after-tax basis. 
So the math gets a little bit tricky, but if you're a high growth protocol, which a lot of these protocols are, maybe using that money to hire a better team or more engineers or paying for marketing and advertising could probably generate a higher yield for existing token holders than dividing out that money to stakers, but not for every protocol, but that's just something worth keeping in mind. But as far as the economic rights go, putting my former investor hat on for a second, it doesn't seem like a great deal to lock up tokens just to get economic rights, because maybe you're really excited about the project today. So in time, stamp T, but two years from now, you may no longer be excited because maybe the team got lazy and then just kind of drifted off into the sunset. But if you locked up for four years, you're kind of stuck with the project for the long term. And so I think the deal is not super great for investors today. Maybe that'll change. Maybe some investors have incredible conviction in certain projects, and that's awesome. But I suspect it's not a great deal for most. Larry, do you have something to say about the governance power too? It was the, I'm not sure if it's a great deal for most investors, just because what I mentioned earlier, it's things may change in the future. And if they're locking up their tokens for too long, then they just lose that optionality in return for power they may not need to exercise. But curious how you guys think about it. Theoretically, say a DAO did want to return money to investors. You're saying the rate of return isn't good today, but say in a couple of years, you have a mature DAO, not really in growth phase anymore. How would you recommend returning money to investors? Are you more pro, say, the maker style of burning or what? I think it, it depends. And there's like existing theoretical frameworks that people in traditional investing circles use. Buffett's framework is pretty wildly known. But the idea is, look, if you have extra cash, you can either return it through a buyback or a dividend. And let's say you think there's just no more growth. You've saturated the world with your product. The whole world uses it. And you're like, well, do I do a buyback or do I do a dividend? And the view you would have to take to do a dividend according to this model, and this model does make sense to me, so that is a logic I do follow, is if the stock is overvalued, you as the company management, you're like, I think the stock is worth 100 bucks, but it's actually trading for 150. So if I buy it back for 150, I'm actually going to lose money because the stock's going to go down in price. If I do a dividend, I can give that money to my shareholders and the after-tax amount of money that they will receive should be better spent than buying overvalued stock because that overvalued stock will actually go down in price in the future. So that's one way to think about it. I know that got a little wonky. Sorry, guys. I think in general, we'll continue to see a lot more experimentation around staking and governance because it's just part of this broader theme of people realizing that just the pure direct democracy style systems of one token, one vote for every single decision may not be the way to go. And that could be solved through pods responsible for specific decisions. It could be solved through negative consent type systems. It could be solved through staking or a combination of a few of these. So I think there's just different trade-offs depending on what you're prioritizing and how quickly you want to make certain decisions. But I'm excited to see a lot more experimentation for good and for bad around this stuff. Are there any other burning questions or things that you guys have been thinking about in the DAO space and the governance space that you guys want to bring up or chat about? I feel like we covered some good ground, hit some high points. I think so too. Are you going to close your round after this thing is released? It's going to be great. <laughs> He's gonna... <laughs> I already closed series B, so like, <laughs> I'm set for a bit. 
So you're saying you're doing a dividend <laughs> to Snakers? Probably in a few months. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think we can call it here then.